You are now listening to the Bayshore Community Church Podcast. Our mission is to connect to God, connect to people, and to serve the community. Thank you for joining us today and wherever you are listening. We hope that this message inspires you, encourages you, and transforms you. Our prayer is that this is just the beginning of a conversation between you and Jesus. Enjoy the message. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Bayshore Millsboro 1030. How many are glad to be here? So good to see you guys. So glad you're here. I was at uh, Fenwick Island this morning at 9. We had a wonderful service there, full, of, full house of people and parking lot full. And the kids sang again. Just loved the kids so much today. It was so awesome to have them up here at this campus singing. And, and how about it? Uh, over 80 kids we adopted this year to help at Christmas time. So incredible. What we do is actually we don't uh, give the gifts to the kids in front of the parents. We give the gifts to the parents or the grandparents, whatever the case may be, to give to the kids. We want to honor those parents as they serve their children. And you guys have done an amazing job. People bring bringing gifts in. All campuses uh, really supported this campus. By the way, gave more gifts than any other campus. You guys are just so incredible in your generosity. So thank you so much. I wanted to uh, just honor some of our volunteer teams as I get started this morning. This is uh, one of the last Sundays we'll meet this year. And I just wanted to give a big shout out to our worship team. Uh, would you just give our worship team a big hand. They do such a great job here at Bayshore. They work hard. They prepare for us. And then the production team, those are the guys in the back that run all the videos and all that. Give them a big hand. Thank you, guys. And the host team, people that greet when they come in. And uh, how many are in the host team? Raise your hand out there. If you're in the host team, would you stand up right now in the audience? Just stand up and uh, let's honor our host team and our greeters. That includes the parking lot people, Irv and Les that are out there by the road, so thank you guys. And the care team that just reaches out to our community here. Uh, If you're part of the care team, would you stand up as well? Stand up right now if you're part of the care team. Let's honor our care team. Thank you so much. These guys do such an amazing job. My, my aunt passed away this uh, last uh, week before last, and this team sent me all kinds of notes and prayers, and just uh, thank you so much for your, your love and care for all of us. And then we have the kids team, people that serve our kids' ministry, and they do an amazing job. You saw some of the work here. Let's give them a big hand. Thank you guys so much. And then the food pantry team, the food pantry team that uh, serves. And uh, wave your hand if you're part of the food pantry. Awesome. And we have a security team here, which is not going to show you the picture of those guys, but uh, those ladies. They they serve. uh, Every campus has security team that watches over us every Sunday. And... uh, you know, they're inconspicuous. They used to have a trench coat and sunglasses on. So if you see them, just thank them for their, for their work. So we're in a series uh, called uh, Christmas Before Jesus. And we've been looking at the Old Testament prophecies that predicted the f- coming of Jesus. Christmas just didn't happen. It just didn't just show up all of a sudden. But in the Old Testament, there is this long runway of predictions of Jesus coming. Scholars differ on the number, but most of them land around 300 prophecies. 300 prophecies in the Old Testament predicting the coming of Jesus in minute detail. So when you think about Christmas showing up and you think about Christmas happening, Christmas just didn't happen. 
Christmas was predicted by the Lord Almighty, letting us know that his son was coming. There's a guy named Peter Stoner, and uh, he was the professor of mathematics and astronomy at Pasadena City College in California. He wrote a book a number of years ago called Science Speaks, and what he did was he took just eight of the 300 prophecies predicting that Jesus was going to come. Just eight of the 300 prophecies to see what is the probability that one man in history would fulfill just eight of the prophecies of which there are 300. What is the probability? He's a uh, mathematician and uh, knows all about that. And so he calculated that it would be one to one to the 17th power or 17 zeros after the one. That is the probability that one person in history would fulfill all, not all, but just simply eight of those prophecies. Now, how does that look? One to one to 17 zeros. What it really equals out to is if you covered the state of Texas with silver dollars, the probability uh, would equal the state of Texas being covered with silver dollars that would cover the state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars. And if you were to take one of those silver dollars, put an X on it, throw it back in the pile, mix up the, the silver dollars and blindfold a man and have him wander through the state of Texas and reach down and pick up that one coin that has the X on it. That's the probability that one person would fulfill in minute detail just eight of the prophecies concerning Jesus. This is an incredible thing. When you read the Old Testament and you see that 700 years before Christ was born, that Isaiah the prophet spoke that he would be born exactly in Bethlehem. Now that's interesting because Jesus was inside the womb of the Virgin Mary in Nazareth, 80 miles away. And so God in his sovereignty and providence orchestrated that the whole Roman world would be in flux and moving to get Mary 80 miles south. God is not only a God, he just doesn't know the future, he decrees the future. See, it's one thing for somebody to say, I know the future, but God just doesn't know the future. God decrees the future. He's in charge of history. History is his story. History is his story. So in the book of Isaiah in chapter 7, we read that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. But then we read in chapter 9 exactly where his ministry would take place. Isaiah 9 through 1 through 7 is one of the most famous Christmas passages, particularly the end of this passage in all of history. Here's what it says, Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. 
They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as a warrior rejoices when dividing plunder. For as in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establish and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The prophecies of Isaiah were predicted in real time and real history. So what was happening? If you picked up a newspaper 700 years before Christ in Isaiah's day, and you would read about what was happening in world events, one of the things you would read is the, uh, the arising of the Assyrian Empire. Now, the Assyrian Empire was this empire that was to the east of uh, Galilee, the east of uh, Israel, the east of Judah, and they have been growing in power. You've had in the past, you've had the northern kingdom, the Israelite kingdom in the north. You've had the Syrians that have been strong. In fact, Isaiah and 7 talks about the Syrians and the, uh, uh, the northern kingdom coming together. But then in the background is this bigger fish that's going to swallow the smaller fish. You've got this big empire, the Assyrian empire, and Isaiah prophesies and it's happening in his time that Assyria will come into the northern kingdom back in 9, 930 BC before uh, 930 BC before Christ. Remember, there was a division in the kingdom. It's like if we had the civil war, the south had won the civil war. You've got a northern kingdom. You've got Israel to the north, whose capital is Samaria. Then you've got the southern kingdom, Judea. The capital is Jerusalem. And there's been a split. And the northern kingdom has been menacing the southern kingdom. But now, what's happening in the past, there's been the northern kingdom and Syria has come in alliance to try to attack the southern kingdom. But the king of Assyria, Tilgat-Pileser, comes and he invades the land of Israel. The, he invades the land of the northern kingdom. And how Isaiah uses the terminology, the terminology is Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Remember when when Joshua came into the land and came into the land that he designated the different tribes to have different portions of the land, think about them as counties. And every tribe of Israel was given a section. Zebulun and Naphtali were given the area around the Sea of Galilee. So the Bible says that what happens is, is the Assyrian king and the Assyrian empire floods into the, the area of the northern kingdom and conquers it. Now, the Assyrians were this mean, menacing people. And when they conquered an area, they tortured the people. They burned the cities. They put the little children in chains, and they took the mothers and the old people in chains, and they took them into captivity, and they devastated the land. And Isaiah says in chapter 9, this land that's covered with darkness, 
this land that's covered with distress, this land that's covered with destruction, out of you, a great light will shine. A great light one day will shine in the very place where this destruction has taken place. So Isaiah is prophesying that where the Assyrians 700 years before Christ marched with their big army booths and they had their swords and they shed blood and they burned down cities and they destroyed the land and they tortured people in this place of deep distress and deep sorrow. One day, a great light will shine. A great light will come in this very place. And remember that the Assyrians are conquering what is now Galilee, the area of Galilee, where Jesus would, would feature his ministry. So 700 years before Christ comes on the earth, before he's born in Bethlehem, before he grows up to become a man and to minister, where he will do most of his miracles in Galilee, at that very place, at that very place of darkness and destruction, a great light will shine. And the Bible says in Matthew chapter 4 that Jesus, he moved from Nazareth and he went to Capernaum and set up his ministry. Now, let's think about this. Jesus grew up in Nazareth. That's in Galilee. Jesus had his headquarters in Capernaum. That's at the top of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus did his first miracle in Cana of Galilee. And so a great light is shining in this place that was once covered with war and darkness and sorrow, that out of this very place where the Assyrians have come, God will shine a great light. And of the 37 miracles that Jesus did, almost all of those miracles were done in Galilee. A great light shone in the place where there once was great war and destruction. God delights to do amazing things in places where terrible things have happened. God delights to do wonderful, redemptive things in places where awful things have happened. My friend Sammy Fisher, who I talk about, he was here a few weeks ago. Sammy built a church uh, in Tyler, Texas. He's a church planner. The name of his church is... Uh, New Covenant Church. If you ever been to Tyler, Texas, it's a little version of Dallas. Big loop. There's a, a highway that loops around the city called the Loop. And Sammy uh, bought a piece of property overlooking the Loop on a hill. And on top of this hill, he took me up there before he built the church up there. There was an old rundown building up there. And next to the building where he was going to have his church was a strip club. A strip club. Now, I don't know if you know what a strip club is, but I guess, you, I guess you know what a strip club is. It's not where they take paint off. This is a strip club, an active strip club. And Sammy built his church right next to the strip club. And you know what happened after a while? They started worshiping the Lord in that building next to the strip club. They were worshiping the Lord, honoring the Lord, preaching the word, people were hugging each other in the parking lot, that you know that strip club closed down because it's hard to go to a strip club when it's next to a church. 
And so this place that was an awful place, a place that broke up marriages, produced addiction in people, a place of darkness, a place of, of ill repute in that very place. God's word shone forth in brightness and light. In 1776, there was this guy named Voltaire. Voltaire, if you went to, when you went to university, you probably had to read Candide or some of uh, Voltaire's uh, pamphlets or the things that he wrote. Voltaire was a uh, very, very uh, hostile, philosoph, French philosopher against Christianity. And he... He was persecuted not only by people that didn't like him, but the government. He criticized the government. So he had to flee to Geneva, to Geneva, Switzerland. And in Geneva, Switzerland, he rented this house. And in the house that Voltaire lived in, he wrote pamphlets against Christianity. He wrote treaties against Christianity. And one day he wrote these words that, Within a hundred years of my passing, you will no longer be able to read a Bible in public because the only place you'll find a Bible is in a museum as sort of a relic of ancient superstition. Less than 50 years from Voltaire's passing, the Geneva Evangelical Bible Society rented that very house. And in that very house, they stored Bibles. They stored tracts, evangelistic tracts, in the very document, the very printers that Voltaire used to print his pamphlets against Christianity were used to print the Bible. How many know God has the last word? Can you say a big amen? <laughs> now, if you doubt the veracity of this, Daniel Merritt. A uh, PhD scholar has researched this. This is not an urban legend in the very house where Voltaire said Bibles will not be, will be basically extinct, that in that very place, the Bible was printed. See, God does amazing things, incredible things in places where horrible things have taken place. God does amazing things where horrible things have taken place. In Washington, D.C., there's a wonderful church called National Community Church, pastored by Mark Batterson. I and some of the uh, staff had the privilege of meeting Mark a couple years ago. We went to Washington and went in his office and talked to him before we started the Rehoboth campus and got some ideas from him. Mark Batterson's a great author. Some of you have written, written, uh, read his books. Uh, my favorite book of his is uh, In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day. I love that book about taking risks. Mark Batterson has churches all over Washington, D.C. And one day he was walking down the road near Union Station. As he's walking down the road near Union Station, he sees an old rundown building that's a crack house. And Mark Batterson looks at that house and he feels like the Holy Spirit taps him on the shoulder, says, I want you to buy that property and I want you to start a coffee shop in that place. And Mark's idea was that in the ancient world, watering wells were where people met together and they intersected with culture. And Mark believes that coffee houses are where we do that today. And he wanted Christianity to intersect with the marketplace at that coffee house. 
And he prayed for eight years, eight years, eight years for the Lord to give him that coffee shop. It was a nuisance property, but they still wanted over a million dollars for it. And he was outbid by a bunch of people and he got that property for $300,000. And he started Ebenezer Coffee Shop, which a couple years ago was the number one coffee shop in Washington, D.C. All the business people would go there. And Mark Batterson, they take the profits of Ebenezer Coffee Shop and they take all the profits and they pour that back into the community and missions. And I think last year they had something like $2 million profit and they built orphanages in Uganda. They did all kinds of things in the community helping homeless people. They took all of their surplus, all the profits and served the community. You know, God takes awful places and he does extraordinary things in it. See, the Bible says when Isaiah is prophesying 700 years before Christ, he said, this land of devastation, Galilee of the Gentiles, he called it Galilee of the Gentiles. Why is it called Galilee of the Gentiles? Because when the Assyrians took out all of the Jewish people out of there, they took them and deported them to break their will and to humiliate them. They bring in all these Gentiles that live in the area where the Jews used to live. And it was called Galilee of the Gentiles. And it says, by the way of the sea, there was an international highway that went from where, uh, from where Assyria was and ran across the top of the Sea of Galilee down to the Mediterranean Sea, all the way down the coast of the Mediterranean Sea into Egypt. It was called by the way of the sea, the Via Maris. And Jesus, it was prophesied 700 years before his coming that he would plant himself right in that place and that God would use him at that very place where war had destroyed the land. God knows what's going to happen, not because he has pre, uh, pre-scientific knowledge, pre-knowledge of what's going to happen. He knows what's going to happen because he decrees what's going to happen. He is the sovereign God of history. The Bible says that Jesus will come back one day and he will rule this land, this earth with a rod of iron and justice will one day be accomplished. That's why we can be people of hope because the Lord knows the end from the beginning because he decrees to be so. Then there's this wonderful uh, description of what Jesus is to be like. It says, for unto us a child is born To us, a son is given. Jesus was given as a gift to us. He was given as a gift to us. A son is given. You know, I used to think the first first, uh, Christmas gift ever given was the three wise men that came with their frankincense and myrrh and gold that they came to present and open their treasures and kneel at the feet of Jesus. I used to think that was the first gift. But they were bringing their gifts to the first gift. The first gift and the best gift of Christmas was the son given to us. Jesus was given to us as a gift. Salvation is a gift. Salvation is free. The Lord has given us his grace and his mercy. And, you know, when you get a gift, you don't have to pay for it. When I get gifts on Christmas, which I'm all about, I love, I know Jesus is the reason for the season, but I love gifts too. How many love gifts? Can you say a big amen? I'm all about that. 
but I never got my gifts and broke out my checkbook and saying, well, how much do I owe you for that? I don't, I don't owe anything for a gift. For by grace we've been saved through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. A number of years ago after Karen's uh, mom and dad had died, um, the first Christmas after that, Joel, our son, he, he uh, Karen's house is where she grew up was over in Seaford in Johnson's development uh, uh, near the, uh, uh, near the, in between the uh, Laurel and Seaford. And Joel took one of the windows out of the old garage that his grandfather used to work in stores, pick up in. He took one of the windows out and then he took pictures. And he took, had a picture of the, the old house picture of, of some of the old buildings and had a picture of Karen's mom and dad in the corner. And in the next pane, it showed them holding hands. And uh, it was an amazing picture. And uh, Karen got it and she's crying. And we all felt like, gee, boy, we can't wait to give her our gift now, you know? <laughs> Hope you love the socks. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't know if we got a picture of that or not. I sent it, but I don't know if we have one. But um, anyhow, that uh, picture was the best gift that was given that year at Christmas. And the best gift that was ever given to mankind, unto us a son is given. And it says in the government, he'll be wonderful counselor. He'll guide us and direct us. And it says, and the government will be on his shoulders. The government will be on his shoulders. Now, when I read that, I'm immediately reminded of how many times I feel like I got the world on my shoulders. How many have ever felt like you got the world on your shoulders? You got all this responsibility for your, for your work and for your family and all this stuff, and you feel anxiety at Christmas, and you feel the pressure and the responsibility of what you're dealing with. You got all that. But the Bible says, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will bear the weight of responsibility in this world. And I love that because, you know, if you're a type A person, you're hyper-responsible and you're responsible for your stuff and you're responsible for other people's stuff and you're, you're just, you know, over-responsible. You have people that are under-responsible that don't take care of their responsibility. And then you got people that they're not only responsible for theirs, they feel responsible for everybody else's stuff. And some of you are there. That's where you are. You're just responsible for everybody. You feel like you've got to cover everything, take care of everything. But the Bible says the government will be on his shoulders. The weight of the world is on his shoulders. You remember Greek mythology? You remember Atlas who went to war against Zeus? And when he went to war against Zeus, he lost in the war. He was one of the main warriors. And then his, his destiny was to spend the rest of his existence holding the world up on his shoulders, holding the world up on his shoulders, and, and to bear the weight of that responsibility for the, all of eternity. And some people have what I call the Atlas Syndrome, where they feel like everything is their responsibility. Hey, I want you to just lift your hand uh, lift your hand up right now. I want you to make a confession as we go at the end of this year, we get ready to start a new year. Lift up your hand. Just say this with me. It is not up to me. The Lord has the government on his shoulders. You need to remember that. I need to remember that. 
Let me ask you how many are, how many out there are your warriors? You're a warrior, you know, and you're married to a non-warrior, which makes it worse. You know what I mean? <laughs> Ever notice that? You got a warrior and then you got a warrior that's mad because she's married to a non-warrior. This causes all kinds of problems. And I just say to guys, it's not even biblical. I say, you need to worry more. You know, you need to help her a little bit here. But I remember one day, years ago, I was, uh, I was in Germany. I was preaching a series of uh, services in Germany. And it was before the days when I had my library on computer and all that. And I had a lot of books with me. I had two big book bags. And I had uh, cases, uh, suitcases as I was there for about three weeks. And I remember catching this train one day and I got a book bag with books on this shoulder, a book bag on this shoulder. And I, I'm dragging my, my two suitcases and I make this train and the train is packed and there's no place to sit. And they got one of those, those uh, poles in the middle of the train and I kind of wrap my arms around the pole and I realized I got all this weight still, these book bags hanging. I'm riding for like 10, 15 minutes. All of a sudden it occurs to me, why am I bearing the weight of these bags on my shoulder when I'm on a train. And I took those bags off and I set them on the floor of the train because the floor of the train and the train had the capacity to carry the weight that I've been carrying. The Bible says to cast your care upon the Lord because he cares for you. Cast your care, your anxiety upon the Lord because he cares for you. Hey, I want you to know he cares for you. Cast your care. It's the word balo. means to throw. Toss your care on the Lord. Toss your care on the Lord. You come to, out of the grocery store, food line or Harris Teeter, if you're well off and you go to Harris Teeter, wherever you are. <laughs> or Giant, if you're mid, you know, almost well off, you know. Karen and I are food line people are true, ourselves, you know. But you got those bags and you carry them out and you open the back of your car and you slide those bags in and the car carries the weight. The Lord carries your weight. I'm going to take a little commercial right now in this sermon and this is not the end of the sermon so don't like figure you're going to leave lift your hands right now I want you to lift your hands I want you to lift all your care to the Lord the Bible says the government is on his shoulders the responsibility of the universe is on the shoulders of the Lord doesn't mean you're not responsible doesn't mean you don't do what you're supposed to do doesn't mean you don't go to work doesn't mean that but it means in your heart of hearts you know you do your part but at the end of the day he is the one that takes care of you Lord as we lift our hands we cast our care upon you, the weight we feel today. We feel weight. We feel responsibility. It's too much for us, Lord. So we cast it upon you. Say this with me. I cast my care upon the Lord because he cares for me. And then he says, uh, his wonderful counselor, everlasting God, mighty God, this is not a man Isaiah is describing. This is not a man. You can't read these verses and think, well, wonder who this is. It's like the preacher that went to, I was new at the church, and 
he was uh, a little nervous and uh, he was going to meet the six-year-old Sunday school class, and he's thinking about how can I get down on their level and relate to them, and the Sunday school teacher of the six-year-olds are saying, listen, our new pastor's coming. I want you to be, act spiritual and all that, and I want you to be, you know, really on your best behavior. So the pastor comes in, he gets down on one knee, and he says, you know, I want to tell you, because what is, what is gray, and what climbs a tree, and what has a bushy tail, and what loves to eat nuts? And one little six-year-old boy says, I know it's supposed to be Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel to me. <laughs> when you read Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, who does it sound like? Is there anybody else in history, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Listen to this, Mighty God. Mighty God. Jesus is Mighty God. There was never a time when he was not. And there is nothing that he cannot do. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And the last thing is, He's the Prince of Peace. He's the Prince of Peace. You know, right now we got a war in, uh, you know, different places in the world. There's wars and rumors of wars. Ukraine, war been raging. War across this planet. I think in the uh, 400 and some years of uh, recorded human history, uh, or 4,000 years of recorded human history, something like that, there's only been 8% of the time when there hasn't been a war. Only 8% of the time when there hasn't been a war. If you know history at all, you know that the Great War started in 1914 in Germany and, and Russia and you know, Great Britain involved everybody. The Great War was called the War to End All Wars. The war to end all wars. When this war is over, there'll never be another war. And when the war was over, Woodrow Wilson was the president of the United States, and he was the leader in formulating the League of Nations. And the League of Nations' job was to make sure there's never war again. So Woodrow Wilson takes his briefcase and takes some people from his own political party, not anybody from the other political party, and he goes to this convention, and we didn't even join the League of Nations that he designed. And less than 50 years later, we had World War II. World War II, the war that was supposed to end all wars, just laid the foundation for the next world war. It says that he is the prince of peace. How many have ever sick of war? War is the most ridiculous thing. You know, uh, St. Augustine has a treatise about a just war when, it's, when there is a reason for war, and that's all important. But war is ridiculous sometimes. Necessary sometimes, but ridiculous. So when is it going to end? Well, if you go to the uh, United Nations in New York City, at the front of the United Nations in New York City, there's a scripture Isaiah 2, that's on a big wall in front of the United Nations. And if you've been there, you may have read this scripture, Isaiah 2. It says this. It says, 
on the wall, it says, they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. That's written right in front of the United Nations. Right in front of the United Nations. So much for, so much for separation between church and state. There's a scripture right there in front of the United Nations. But they misquote the verse. They leave out the first part. They say, they're, they're emphasizing that one day, you know, we're going to be able to pull off. You know, everybody, all the swords are going to be beat into plowshares. And there's a statue there of a man bending a sword. But the first part of the verse says this. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. The only time that we'll have universal peace in this planet is when the Prince of Peace comes. The Prince of Peace comes. We'll never be able to pull it off on our own. Should we try? Absolutely. But it's not until the Prince of Peace comes that there'll be ultimate peace. I love that, that reality that one day the Prince of Peace will come and he'll He'll enforce peace, not with like, hey, what you do is okay. It says he'll rule with justice and righteousness. He will be the prince of peace. And maybe, uh, maybe you have your own little war with a friend or someone in your life, and you struggle with that. You can't seem to bring resolution and to that. I want you to know that the prince of peace Will ultimately bring, bring peace. Say this with me. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace. And the increase of his government, there will be no end. Would you lift your hands and worship the king that was going to be the great light shining in the land of Galilee where there once was war, a great light was coming. Matthew wrote about it in chapter 4 as he saw Jesus walk on the shores of Capernaum in the midst of Galilee. Matthew recognized it. He said, this is the fulfillment of Isaiah, the fulfillment of Isaiah 9, that in this land of darkness a great light will shine. And Father, we thank you that during this Christmas season, we have the light of the world in our heart. doesn't matter how dark times are. It doesn't matter how dark things are in our personal life or how, how dark they are internationally. It doesn't matter how dark they are. In the place of darkness, a great light will shine. The Prince of Peace will come and bring peace to our heart. And we love you and we honor you this day in Jesus' name. And if you love Jesus, say a big amen. And say, Jesus is Lord of my life. Amen. God bless you. Let's give the Lord a praise offering this morning. God bless you guys. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much for joining us on the Bayshore podcast. I want to encourage you to take this message you just received and allow it to go deep into your soul and let Jesus do the deep work that only he can do. A special thanks to everyone that gives generously to Bayshore. It's because of you that this ministry is possible, creating life change all over the world. 
You can be a part of spreading the message around the world by going to bayshore.online and clicking give. For all things Bayshore, visit bayshore.online to find out what your next step may be. You can subscribe right here and share this podcast with your friends and family. Thank you again for listening. God bless you.